0: The idea underlying stimulus control is very simple, and that is that we learn associations between certain stimuli and certain behaviours, an obvious example of which is that if you are driving and you're approaching a red light, then you'll reflexively start to put your foot down on the brake over time. You've learned to associate the stimulus, the red light, with the behaviour which is braking. And what happens in insomnia is that as people spend more time awake in bed, they start to associate the stimulus, the bed, with a behavior, which is being awake in bed. And they need to retrain their brains to associate their beds with being a place of sleep.
1: Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness from scientists and researchers to internationally recognised clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi everyone, welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host Nathan Rose and with me back for a second time is Dr Greg Potter. Hey Greg, how are you going?
0: Yeah, very well, thank you Nathan. Nice to speak again.
1: Likewise, we had such a... Uh, Great response from your first podcast. I've got a bunch of questions for your second, so here we are. Um, my first question, personally, it's, what's it, Monday morning for you? So um, you're bright and early. Did you suffer from social jet lag this weekend?
0: <laughs> I actually probably did. And the reason <laughs> is that I've been waking up relatively early during the working week. Because I've got a lot on my plate at the moment and that's just how my mind responds to being busy. I'm somebody who's an early bird anyway and the more that I have on, the earlier I tend to wake up. Right. So whereas on Saturday and Sunday I woke up at around half six, today I was up at five. So yes, unfortunately I did, I need to practice what I preach. <laughs> Well,
1: today we're going to talk all about sleep. I think last time we spoke about more circadian rhythm and light exposure, nutrient timing, um, time of exercise, et cetera. But today I really wanted to dive into sleep, um, poor sleep, insomnia, and what we can do about it to get a good night's sleep. And also, what's the consequences of poor sleep, both acutely and over the long term? Um... And also in this uh, time of lockdown, and hopefully over in the UK you're slowly coming out of lockdown, but um, over this time there's been questions around um, sleep and how it can affect immunity and also around COVID we've had all these uh, increases, obviously in mental health issues because of COVID. And so there's a couple of questions. Firstly, immunity, then uh, then, um, mental health. So how does sleep affect immunity?
0: sleep and immunity are bidirectionally linked so immune system activation will alter sleep and we've known this for quite a long time and depending on things like the nature of the activation and the severity of the activation it can either increase sleep duration and intensity or it can disrupt sleep and it's thought that it will enhance sleep or deepen sleep and prolong sleep so as to promote host defense against the immune threat. But then sleep in turn also affects both the innate and the adaptive arms of the immune system. And it affects lots of different immune parameters. And when people sleep well, they tend to have a lower infection risk. And also people who sleep well will tend to have better Responses to vaccinations. Yeah, right. And interestingly, when you look at the immune system and memory in the immune system specifically, in many ways it's analogous to brain memory. So when you're learning things, there's this encoding phase in which the information that you need to remember is taken up. And in the immune system, this is the uptake of a pathogen, such as coronavirus, by antigen presenting cells but then there's a consolidation phase. And during this stage, the information is transferred to a longer term storage depot. And for memories in the brain, this is typically related to transferring it from the hippocampus to elsewhere in the brain. And for memories in the immune system, in this case, it's transferred from antigen presenting cells to T cells. And then there's a recall phase, And during this phase, the remembered information can be retrieved. And this is represented in the immune system by activation of memory T and B cells. And interestingly, for both brain memory and immune memory, it seems that slow wave sleep is particularly important to consolidating this type of memory. And then I mentioned vaccination. When you think about vaccination, it's an ideal way of, studying the importance of sleep to immune function as it mimics an infection and it can be delivered in very specific ways. And the first study that was done looking at the effects of not getting enough sleep on vaccination responses looked at what happens when people have restricted time in bed for four nights before a vaccination and then a couple of nights after it. And they then assessed virus specific antibody levels ten days after the vaccination, and they found that the levels of those antibodies were more than twice as high in the people who are allowed to get their usual time in bed versus those who had restricted sleep and there has since been a series of studies done that have looked at the effects of things like acute sleep de- deprivation, so one night without any sleep whatsoever, following the vaccination on responses to everything from hepatitis to H1N1 which is swine flu and these studies quite consistently show that the antigen responses are reduced when people don't get any sleep and the relevance of this of course is that in some people who receive vaccination if they don't sleep well afterwards or around the time of vaccination they might need additional vaccinations because their antibody titers will be below the levels that are necessary to actually result in immunization.
1: Wow. Fascinating. And when you say sleep restriction, what sort of levels are they experiencing?
0: That first study, I think they had four hours in bed each night, which is quite severe sleep restriction for most people. But what I would say is that this is likely a sliding scale. So you would expect people who have more severe sleep restriction to have more impaired responses.
1: Yeah, sure. And mental health. So there's been anxiety, um, worry about the future, obviously, and maybe even the isolation. What role does sleep play? Or are you mindful of sleep in, in this sort of COVID era and its effects on mental health?
0: Again, it's a two way street. We know that nighttime sleep will affect daytime mood and how reactive our emotions are to various stresses and how well we can regulate both positive and negative emotions. And on the other hand, our daytime experiences will affect our sleep. And lots of people have known for a long time that sleep problems and mood disorders tend to co-occur. Sleep, de- sleep disruption tends to associate with the onset and severity and how likely people are to relapse from lots of different mood disorders, from depression to bipolar disorder. And we know quite a lot about the mechanisms that underlie this relationship. But with respect to COVID-19, there's already been a systematic review of COVID-19 and mental health which is astonishing given that the the pandemic only began a few months ago. But in short, the studies that have looked at healthcare workers have found that during this pandemic, they've experienced more depression or depressive symptoms. They're more anxious than they were previously. And interestingly, they have worse sleep quality too. And it's likely that certain things will affect the likelihood of experiencing these. And those factors include being female. So women are more likely than men to experience these negative consequences. People with poorer self-reported health will tend to have more mood problems. And then people who've been directly affected by COVID-19, so people whose relatives have been affected, for example, will tend to have worse mental health at the moment than those without relatives who have been affected. And there's also some evidence that insomnia seems to be contributing to suicidal ideation during the pandemic, which is no great surprise because there was a large body of evidence prior to the pandemic showing that people who have insomnia may be more likely to think about that type of thing. And this is all noteworthy because Sleep quality in general seems to have deteriorated during this time. There have been a couple of nice studies that have looked at sleep in relatively healthy adults, both students but also middle-aged adults. And those studies have basically shown that while people's sleep schedules tend to be more regular at the moment because they have more control over their lives, and while these people may be spending a bit longer in bed than they were previously, especially during the lockdown period. At the same time, they're getting worse sleep quality. And we have to remember that those studies are studies of relatively healthy people. So if anything, it's likely that they underestimate how negatively affected some people have been by the pandemic.
1: Interesting, it's great that there's data coming out already. I'm curious on how they track these people, but I might get to that in a moment. Okay, and so obviously it's critical um, and, yeah, it's I think a common theme with sleep and any sort of chronic disease it's a bidirectional um, mm. circuit going on there. It could be the cause or consequence of these or contributing to these conditions. So we'll, we'll dive into that shortly. So first of all, I want to explore what is actually sufficient versus insufficient sleep. Um, I've been reading, I'm only sort of halfway through, um, Matthew Walker's book on sleep, and I know you've had it Um, a few comments about his book and content in other podcasts we can maybe touch upon that Um, because yeah it's a it's a quite a good read but I do find it quite um, depressing that the way it's structured that it seems like if you don't get anything more than eight hours sleep and and also have a nap then you're putting yourself at serious health risk so my first question is how much is enough Um, is there variation do we need to nap what's the sort of you know, your views on adequate versus um, problematic amounts and of quality of sleep.
0: Yeah. So this is a big topic, but I'll try not <laughs> to make my answer too long. And for people who want a more in-depth discussion of that, I spoke with Dave McConey for his podcast, which you can find on YouTube or iTunes, about the first chapter of Walker's book because somebody wrote quite a critical rebuttal of that first chapter and Dave just wanted somebody to come on the show to discuss that rebuttal. And it was basically a one hour monologue of me just harping on about everything that was raised in that blog post. So with that said, what I would say is that how much sleep somebody needs is a moving target and For a given individual, it will vary according to factors such as how old the person is. When you're younger, you might need a bit more sleep, for example, how physically active you are. If you go from being completely sedentary to moderately physically active, you'll tend to sleep a bit longer. And then as I touched on before, things like infection will acutely affect how long you sleep. And then another modifying variable may be the time of year. So if you live at a relatively high latitude and the duration of the photo period changes quite a lot over the course of the calendar, then you might find that you sleep substantially longer during the relatively long nights of winter than you do during the summer. As a general rule, the National Sleep Foundation recommends that adults get seven to nine hours of sleep per night and when I say adults, that's 18 to 64 year old adults, I believe, but there are genetically short sleepers. And there was a study published quite recently that found a novel mutation in one of the adreno receptor genes that resulted in a particularly short sleep phenotype. And this was the shorter sleep phenotype that has yet been identified and specifically people with this mutation only needed 5.7 hours of sleep per night on average but if we think that that's the low end of the range then the people who report being fine on getting four hours of sleep per night because there aren't enough hours in a day for all the work they need to do are probably not being completely true to reality. But one of the issues of course is that those people may not subjectively feel how impaired they are by sleep loss when on objective measure, they might be more impaired than they realize. So I think starting with seven to nine hours per night makes a lot of sense, but with respect to how problematic sleep loss is, I think it depends quite a lot on the person and Some people seem to be quite resilient against the effects of sleep loss, whereas other people really don't. And interestingly, that seems to depend on what you look at specifically. So for example, cognition versus appetite, it may be that somebody's working memory isn't that impaired by sleep loss, but they become overindulgent and consume many more calories than they otherwise would have. And as a result, their cardiometabolic health over time will become impaired and, That raises an issue, which is that the effects of repeated sleep loss are likely to accumulate over time. But with that said, I think people shouldn't be too concerned about occasionally losing sleep. And I think it's a problem when people say that not getting enough sleep has all of these ruinous effects on different aspects of our health and function, because that can make people anxious and put pressure on themselves to sleep well, which ironically can actually worsen their sleep. And because sleep is homeostatically regulated, because our bodies try and defend how much sleep we get, we tend to effectively compensate for occasional poor nights of sleep. So if you sleep poorly tonight, then you probably find that tomorrow night you'll sleep well. And that will help you bounce back to your normal baseline.
1: Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense about the homeostatic uh, mechanisms in play. Um, so I'll come back to tracking. I just had another question, which I didn't sort of um, forward you, to you, but again, the book um, almost scares me about the the prospect of aging, which we can't escape, but mm. it sort of reads like the, obviously the older you get, the worse your sleep gets, and like electrical activity, et cetera. So my question is, and not, um, I may not have an answer for this, is it's sort of like that um, as you get older, you you know, you develop more health conditions. I think it now to like testosterone levels. Like as men get older, the testosterone levels decline, but you can see in certain studies that there's men, you know, in their 80s that have testosterone levels the same as, say, a 20- or 30-year-old. So is it the poor sleep? Does it decline naturally as we age or is it just, is it almost a proxy for the chronic diseases and poor health that we sort of accumulate
0: as we get older? It's a really good question. I don't think we have a very good answer to that at the moment. There's a researcher named Bryce Mander who's done a lot of good work on this in recent years. And in general, what you tend to see is that time spent in the deepest stage of sleep declines as people get older, particularly early in the sleep period. And slow wave activity, which are these large high amplitude brain waves that are important to things like memory consolidation and the brain's immune system tends to decline a lot, and specifically in frontal parts of the brain. And the degree to which that happens may associate with certain clinical features such as cognitive impairment. So we do see those changes. There are a lucky few people who don't seem to experience such detrimental consequences as they age. And those people tend to have better cognitive health outcomes too over time. And all of this raises an interesting question, which is, are there things that we can do to protect our sleep as we age? And to, for example, offset some of those changes in sleep structure such that we buffer ourselves against things like mild cognitive impairment over time. Brilliant.
1: Brilliant. All right, so let's move on to tracking now Um, and we'll come back to some of those concepts you just raised. So, yeah, you you mentioned uh, an area where um, you can almost develop the nocebo effect maybe from tracking your sleep. And so Mm. um, I know there's different ways to track sleep these days and I think clinically it's important, but also um, too much testing, too much information sometimes can play in your mind, as you mentioned. So what are some of the ways you can track from you know, low tech to high tech?
0: There are lots of ways. And I think people often assume that higher tech way is preferable when I don't think that's necessarily the case. But one way of breaking down the different ways that people can track their sleep is passive versus versus active ways. So if you think of passive ways, then there are wearables, of course, and these include wrist-worn and finger-worn wearables. And in general, the hardware in these devices seems to be quite similar. So their accuracy probably largely depends on the quality of the algorithms that run on the hardware. And in general, these devices are quite good at assessing how long we sleep and the timing of sleep, too, over time. They're not so good at staging sleep, So I don't think people should be too concerned about looking at sleep hypnograms, the time spent in deep sleep and REM sleep and so on based on data coming out of these devices. And what I would say is if you're looking at different options for which devices you can purchase or use with your clients or your patients, then consider the other data that you're getting from the devices. So, Which physical activity data are you most interested in? Which heart rate data are you most interested in, for instance? And I'm often more interested in those data from these devices than I am in the sleep data, especially for people with sleep issues. And I think this is very relevant at the moment, too, because if you look, for example, at Fitbit data, then based on those data, we know that the lockdown periods that have been implemented worldwide have led to substantial reductions in step counts and obviously that differs according to the country that you look at and you Aussies were not so negatively affected as we Europeans were during the lockdown period so good on you but I think look at those look at the style of the device and its usability. A lot of people find that if they wear a smart ring, such as an Aura ring, they're more likely to keep it on than if they wear a wrist worn device. And then also some other practical variables such as how long the battery life might be. And then there are active ways of tracking sleep too. And these include things like questionnaires and possibly the most common of these is the Pittsburgh sleep quality index, which is a really useful way of tracking sleep quality from one month to the next. The nice thing about this is that you can just use it with somebody on an as needed basis, maybe multiple times a year. It could be every month at the most frequent, but you might use it two or three times a year just to see how somebody's sleep is changing over time as one variable within an assessment of somebody's overall health and health related behaviours. And then there are diaries that are used to look at night to night changes in sleep. And these are particularly helpful for people who have certain sleep issues foremost among which is insomnia. And a few of these are available. I particularly like one which was developed by Daniel Bicey and it's called the consensus sleep diary. And those diaries will give you things like sleep duration and sleep timing, which you'd get from the wearables too, but they'll also track other dimensions of sleep health, such as somebody's subjective sleep quality. And that is important. Going back to Matthew Walker's book, one of the criticisms that he's received is that it focuses heavily on sleep loss, but sleep duration is only one dimension of sleep health. And the other dimensions include things like sleep timing and sleep timing variability and then measures of sleep quality too and sleep quality can be quite difficult to assess but it includes both objective measures of sleep quality such as sleep efficiency or the proportion of time that somebody's in bed as well as subjective measures so how well somebody feels they slept and somebody's daytime function, so how sleepy do they feel during the day, for example, all of those things are predictive of changes in long-term health. So while sleep diaries are a bit more fiddly to assess and to draw data from than passive wearables, they do give useful information that's difficult to capture at the moment using the current generation of wearables. So I think depending on the circumstances, I like using both of them. I think for people who have insomnia, using a sleep diary makes a lot of sense. And I think for certain populations who are disposed in activity, having a wearable that gives accurate assessments of things like step count is particularly important.
1: So with the passive ones, you mentioned there, those other pieces of data you're more interested in. So... Are you suggesting like step count, you can use that to see if there's getting, people are getting enough activity in to create like that, that sleep pressure you mentioned I think in the last podcast or you're looking at like heart rate variability to see whether the patient may be doing too much exercise or, or stress. So what are the, some of the specifics you, you'd like to look at?
0: Sure. So I think step count is definitely one of those. And as you mentioned, there are a few different things that will tend to affect Depressed sleep that we experience during the day. And one of those is physical activity, another is cognitive activity. And I think step count is a useful proxy for physical activity in most people. It's not perfect by any means. And some devices do a better job of assessing energy expenditure during other forms of exercise, such as cycling. So energy expenditure could be a useful one, but I don't think the, the, the assessments of energy expenditure are as good as the step count ones are at the moment. So, in terms of other metrics to look at, I think pulse rate and pulse rate variability can be useful. I say pulse rate because these devices don't assess heart rate over the heart, they assess a proxy app of it, which is change in pulse at the finger or at the wrist or at the arm. And I would Often look at resting pulse rate, and you can look at pulse rate variability using some devices, such as the O-ring or the Whoop. And in general, what you'll find is that if somebody's resting pulse rate goes down, then their pulse rate variability goes up. Those two things aren't always coincident, but that general relationship is there. So if I was going to look at one pulse rate metric, then it would probably be resting pulse rate, which is quite strongly predictive of various health outcomes over time and then otherwise i think the data from devices will be increasingly useful at identifying other health outcomes in the future a lot of manufacturers are very interested right now in whether they can use data from these devices to forecast things such as the development of COVID-19 i know the guys at Aura for instance and there 's a lot of research interest right now in using all rings to predict some of those changes because if these devices are assessing things such as body temperature as well, then those data could be quite insightful over time. But right now, I would largely focus on sleep duration, sleep timing, step count, and resting pulse rate, and then There are certain people who might want to look at some other features too. So the athletes of the world might use these devices to track certain things. And I think that for those people, the Whoop is actually a particularly particularly good option. The new generation Whoop has a lot of added features that make it well suited to tracking those types of exercise. And then I also think that the Garmin devices are ideal for people who do very long duration activity. Some of their watches have monstrous battery lives and a lot of nice exercise tracking functionality too. So again, it it depends on what somebody is using it for, but I think I would start with those metrics and I would not necessarily always look at these things. I think it's something that people can dip in and out of. And it's during those times when we feel that we're most likely to not meet our, Health behavior targets that these devices become more useful. So, for example, during lockdown when people weren't allowed to spend as much time outside exercising, having something on your wrist that increases the salience of your physical activity is going to be more helpful than it would be midsummer during pre lockdown when lots of people are spending lots of time outside, out and about. Great. Right.
1: All right. So now, I want to explore insomnia or um, yeah, sleep disturbances, and it's probably, I'm sure, a broad term. But um, so, my first question is: Is there actually like a, a pathophysiology behind insomnia? Like, I don't presume it's a simple blood test, and you've got X amount of melatonin this point of night, or this neurotransmitter is out of balance, or this brain region is underactive. Is there a consensus in people with you know chronic insomnia?
0: Uh, on what the pathophysiology is? I'm not sure I would describe it as a consensus. <laughs> and I haven't, I haven't spent much time looking at this literature recently. But in general, what researchers have reported is increased activity in the frontal cortex and the cerebrum. You tend to see changes in the HPA axis, so increased activity of the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. And then the amygdala might be a bit more reactive than it otherwise would be. But with that said, people are increasingly looking at more data driven approaches to phenotyping different types of insomnia. And it's clear that the picture is a little bit more complex than we once thought. But I think those are generally the well-accepted biological bases of insomnia.
1: Okay. So then yeah, are moving on. Um, and then we'll get to like, uh, for me, amygdala is synonymous with like anxiety, fear, worry. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of, I'm sure like psychological, where people can't sleep. I'm just wondering if there's like, yeah, sort of, yeah. Um, a phenotype or um, biology behind it. So maybe the next sort of level up is like what, things, are there common biological factors um, that are linked to poor sleep insomnia, you know, like thyroid or you mentioned HPA, any sort of, if a patient or a practitioner or someone's trying to get around their sleep or understand their sleep better, are there any sort of things they should be mindful of that could be contributing to it like a biological level, um, first of all?
0: Yeah. So the things I would focus on would be other health conditions We know, for example, that insomnia tends to co-occur with certain mental disorders, and these include everything from mood disorders to anxiety disorders, psychotic ones, amnestic disorders. And sometimes there are some psychological problems which are more pervasive during childhood, such as ADD, attention deficit disorder, that can co-occur with insomnia. And then there are other medical conditions to consider. And there's a range of these, everything from neurological ones, the cardiovascular ones, pulmonary, digestive, genital urinary, musculoskeletal, endocrine, reproductive, lots of ones. So I won't rattle off a list of what these things are necessarily, but just as one example of this, if somebody has rheumatoid arthritis, and they experience more joint pain during the nocturnal vigil than they do during the daytime, then that might well disrupt their sleep. And for this reason, it always makes sense to factor in these different things when treating insomnia. And often somebody will begin by assessing these medical conditions before intervening to help somebody sleep better, because sometimes treating these things alone will resolve the insomnia, And then just as a related comment, there are some medications and substances that can contribute to sleep difficulties. And commonly these include things like antidepressants, specifically serotonin tends to be a weight-promoting neuromodulator, so SSRIs will tend to promote wakefulness and, and may impair sleep. Then there are, of course, stimulants, which include everything from widely consumed ones like caffeine, to ones that are used for specific conditions. So for example, methylphenidate or Ritalin. And then there are decongestants that people will use for certain conditions that may be quite alerting. Then there are drugs that are used to treat people with cardiovascular issues. So things like beta blockers. And then there are other things that people just tend to use and abuse from time to time. And one of those is alcohol, which a lot of people historically have thought of as a sleep aid, but which actually tends to disrupt sleep.
1: It's a good reminder about all the the, uh, medications and stimulants that can be contributing. All right. So what I've been wanting to get to is um, how to help people sleep better. I know of several people who seem healthy and do all the seemingly the sleep hygiene practices, yet still have trouble sleeping uh so the first question is um there's different flavors obviously of insomnia like um sleep onset versus sleep maintenance does that um determine what sort of therapy one would do do you, do you sort of divvy it up that
0: way yeah it's, it's a really interesting question and the most common way of helping people who have insomnia is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And when you apply CBTI, you don't tend to apply it very differently according to somebody's sleep phenotype. Regardless, you're trying to identify and address the source of the sleep difficulties using everything that's in the CBTI toolkit. But with that said, some interventions that are used have been better studied in the context of certain types of insomnia. So for example, there's an intervention named paradoxical intention which has been best studied for helping people who have sleep onset insomnia. And I think in terms of helping people with different types of insomnia, the thing that is most consistently different is the pharmacological approaches that are used to help these people. So specifically for people who have sleep onset insomnia, sleep... Medicine clinicians will tend to be more likely to prescribe faster acting hypnotics. So, one of these is Zolpidem or Ambien for sleep onset insomnia. Whereas, for people who struggle to sleep through the night, they're more likely to prescribe slower act- acting hypnotics. So, for example, there's a time release version of melatonin named Circadin, which is used here in Europe quite widely for people who find themselves waking frequently during the night. So, I think. Generally, it applies most of pharmacological approaches, but the cornerstones of helping people by way of behavioural and cognitive interventions are much the same.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I've probably been looking from a, a medical model. So, uh, tell me about CBTI. How long has it been around for? What's the sort of evolution? What's the sort of success rate? What's involved, etc.
0: Yeah, so it's it's been around for a while and the evidence is very consistent showing its utility. And interestingly, it seems to be similarly effective when delivered online than to when it's delivered in person. Although there probably are variables that modify the efficacy of it, such as how old somebody is because very elderly people may be less tech savvy than people who are younger. And for those people, for that reason, online interventions may may not be quite so effective, but what CBTI typically involves is at least six weeks of a combination of cognitive and behavioral interventions. And if you go to a practitioner to seek help for you or insomnia by way of CBTI, you'll typically go through normal screening, so you have family history assessment, medical history, and so on, and The clinician will tend to focus on various factors that dispose you to developing insomnia. So one of those might be for example that you're elderly, older people are more likely to experience insomnia. Then precipitating factors, so maybe there's been some life event which has triggered a bout of insomnia and at the moment that might be something like the COVID-19 pandemic. And then there are perpetuating factors such as conditioned arousal that happen as somebody's sleep deteriorates. And there are a variety of learned negative sleep behaviours, so using caffeine, for example, to cope with poor sleep, and also cognitive distortions. So people will often catastrophize about the negative effects of poor sleep on their function. So maybe they'll say, well, if I don't sleep well tonight, then I'm going to be hopeless at work tomorrow. And those thoughts will tend to perpetuate their sleep problems. But when it comes to actually implementing CBTI, you'll almost always begin by using a sleep diary to track your sleep for one or two weeks. And when you're looking at that, you will use something like the Consensus Sleep Diary, look at your sleep from one night to the next, and then the practitioner will tend to assess things like how long somebody is sleeping during that time and then use some of these data later to determine the nature of the interventions. But with respect to these interventions, it should probably be called BCTI because most CBTI approaches will begin with behavioral changes and then later start cognitive interventions. And they'll normally start with at least one behavioral intervention. And if somebody is experiencing insomnia, then it will benefit them to stop napping during the daytime because that will help them build lots of pressure to sleep, which will better consolidate their sleep overnight. Then there are of course sleep hygiene interventions, which are necessary, but not sufficient to help people overcome insomnia. And people listening to this will be very familiar with all of these different sleep hygiene interventions, which include everything from improving physical activity to patterns of a light exposure to diet, composition and timing, stimulant use, alcohol, medication use, screen time, and developing a relaxation routine in anticipation of bedtime, which you probably want to begin a couple of hours or so before your planned bedtime. But in addition to those sleep hygiene interventions, the things that are important to the efficacy of CBTI include things like stimulus control therapy, And when I personally help people who have insomnia, we almost always begin implementing stimulus control from the start. And the idea underlying stimulus control is very simple. And that is that we learn associations between certain stimuli and certain behaviors. An obvious example of which is that if you are driving and you're approaching a red light, then you'll reflexively start to put your foot down on the brake over time. You've learned to associate the stimulus, the red light, with the behavior, which is breaking. And what happens in insomnia is that as people spend more time awake in bed, they start to associate the stimulus, the bed, with a behavior, which is being awake in bed. And they need to retrain their brains to associate their beds with being a place of sleep. And so what that entails is, A, only going to bed when actually sleepy, B, if you wake up at night and you can't get back to sleep within 20 minutes or so leaving bed and doing something relaxing in a different room and then maybe checking in with yourself every 20 minutes or so about whether you are sleepy and if you are sleepy returning to bed but if you're not sleepy continuing to do the relaxing activity which might be something like reading a book or meditating or listening to relaxing music and then c saving the bedroom for sex and sleep only and in an ideal world just for sleep but for some people that's not be really practical and then in addition to stimulus control you'll often start with some relaxation exercises which are helpful both in anticipation of the sleep period but also if somebody wakes up during the night and there are lots of different ones that can be used everything from progressive muscle relaxation which involves sequentially scanning through different muscles in the body, tensing them for six seconds or so, holding the tension, and then relaxing, and as you relax, exhaling. And typically, you'd begin with the toes, so doing contractions of the muscles in the toes, holding those contractions, and then easing the contraction, and you then scan upwards through the body, finishing with the face and the head. Then there are breathing exercises that people can use to reduce how aroused they feel and these can be things that people do by themselves such as a breathing meditation or they can involve feedback devices so there are different forms of biofeedback that have been used and some of these will focus specifically on respiration then there are imagery exercises that people can use so people can just visualize a relaxing place And that will tend to distract them from their negative thoughts about sleep if they're lying in bed thinking, why can't I sleep? And trying to force sleep. Then, as I mentioned earlier, there's paradoxical intention. And the idea underlying this approach is to have somebody try and just remain passively awake while in bed, avoiding any effort whatsoever to fall asleep. And by doing this, people will help eliminate their performance anxiety to sleep well. And that seems to be quite effective, especially as I mentioned earlier, of people who struggle to fall asleep at the start of the night. So normally you'd start with stimulus control plus one of these relaxation exercises while you're tracking sleep during the initial period. And if after, let's say two weeks of tracking sleep, you find out that somebody is typically spending for ease of calculation, 10 hours in bed per night, but they're only asleep for six of those hours, then what you might then implement is something named bedtime restriction therapy. And what this entails is restricting somebody's time in bed to the amount of time that they're actually asleep in bed. So in this instance, if they're asleep for six hours per night, then they would only spend six hours in bed. Sometimes practitioners will add about 30 minutes onto that number. And if somebody's getting less than maybe five and a half hours of sleep, I wouldn't recommend restricting the sleep period to less than five and a half hours but based on the sleep diary data the next step would be at maybe week three of this cbti or cbt intervention to have somebody delay their bedtime while fixing their wake time at a certain time to restrict their sleep opportunity so if before somebody was going to bed at 10 p.m spending 10 hours in bed and getting out of bed at 8am then they might now stay awake until 2am and then get out of bed at the same time as previously at 8am so now they've got six hours in bed which corresponds to the amount of time they're actually asleep and what they would find is that especially during the first couple of weeks they would they would struggle because they would still have poor sleep quality and so they'd find themselves feeling quite sleepy and probably having quite a poor mood during the day. But because during the daytime people would stay awake and not nap and be physically active to build lots of pressure to sleep very quickly, the quality of their sleep would improve. And then as their sleep improves, their sleep efficiency will increase. And if after implementing this for a week, sleep efficiency is now 85% or higher, then you would have the person advance their bedtime. So instead of going to bed at 2 a.m., they might now go to bed at, let's say, 20 to 2 or at 1.45. And as you track somebody's sleep over time, if their sleep efficiency remains above 85%, then you would continue to advance sleep by 20 minutes per night until after several weeks, somebody is getting as much time in bed as they would like and their sleep efficiency remains high. So it's called bedtime restriction therapy or sleep restriction therapy, but in a way it might be more accurate to call it sleep consolidation therapy. And then finally, in addition to some of these behavioral interventions, a practitioner would often add some specific means of helping to improve somebody with their negative sleep related thoughts and there are lots of different cognitive therapies that are used some of my favorites include scheduling worry time this often sounds bizarre to people when they first hear it but if for example you're very busy during the daytime and that busyness prevents you from focusing on your poor sleep But then later in the day as you finish your work and you've got various things out the way, your negative sleep related thoughts start to bubble up to the surface, which commonly happens in insomnia because often what happens is people feel increasingly aroused in anticipation of bedtime. Then what you can do is you can just sit down in the early evening. So perhaps after dinner and you can list everything that you're worried about in one column. And then in the adjacent column, you can list everything that you can do in the short term and preferably it would be the simplest thing possible to address that particular worry. And that might include something like reaching out to an expert for help with something. And in some cases, you'll be worried about things that you can't do anything about. And if that's the case, then that's fine. I would just say, you just want to list that you can't do anything about it, but at least you're helping to get that worry out of your mind through this type of diarising exercise. Then for people who are very busy, making a to-do list for the next day, shortly before bedtime could be very helpful. That way you don't go to bed holding on to thoughts of everything that you need to get to in the following day. And with these exercises, I'd suggest that people use a paper, diary, and a pen, and they keep this by their bedside during the sleep period, in case they wake up and they realize that they forgot to note something. And then there are also different ways of diarising your negative sleep-related thoughts. So you might just keep a diary on you during the daytime. And every time a negative thought arises, you might list things such as the context in which it arose, what the thought itself was, whether the thought was accurate. So what's the evidence that supports the thought? What's the evidence that refutes it? And then what's a more adaptive way of considering that thought and can you frame it in a more positive light? And on this note, I think there's quite a strong body of evidence now showing that mindfulness based approaches can be useful additions to typical traditional CBTI approaches. And a lot of people will already be doing mindfulness training now, but for people who aren't, I think even a short bout of mindfulness, early in the day can be a useful adjunct. So that was quite a long list of things, but that's typically how you would structure a CBTI program. And with all of that said, if if that seemed overwhelming or whatever, what I would say is that there are online approaches such as the Sleepio website that can be very helpful for people who are struggling with insomnia, and also educational for practitioners who want to get to grips with this without spending lots of time reading academic papers.
1: Oh, brilliant that's yeah so comprehensive yeah so many comments there um it almost seems counterintuitive that that sleep consolidation idea but mm. when you spell it out it does make a lot of sense and you see them almost building up their, their efficiency or, or fitness Yeah, i think a lot of practitioners probably thankfully look at all the the, B, the behavioral aspects about the caffeine and light etc but i Mm -hmm. I doubt they're that familiar with all the the cognitive and maybe even mindfulness, or they might be doing a bit of mindfulness, but you seem to have very comprehensive. With that in mind, it feels like you covered it all, but I do have a few other questions on, um, and maybe these are sort of redundant. Um, You've mentioned earlier, like I think in last podcast, that the physiology of falling asleep about body temperature and sound and Mm -hmm. light and et cetera. Um, I know you said, you talk in other communities like the biohackers and things there's a lot of novel sort of, um, sleeping aids out there from heavy dunas and rocking beds and, um, heavy, uh, chili pads. What are some of the, <laughs> these aids and, um, where do they fit in? Do you think any are effective, uh, that people should consider using?
0: Yeah. So there are lots of these aids and, As always, I think some of them are helpful in some contexts and you should always consider somebody's overall health and everything that they're struggling with at the moment before choosing what to implement. You mentioned temperature there. I think of the different temperature based technologies, the one that I find most interesting is something developed by Eric Nofsinger, who is, Bit of a hero in the field of sleep research, and a few years ago, he created a forehead cooling device. As I mentioned earlier, in insomnia, you tend to see increased metabolism in various brain regions, particularly those in frontal brain regions. And he developed this simple cooling device and has since published some abstracts and studies of the device, which have generally shown that when people use this device they may sleep substantially better. So their sleep efficiency may be much higher than it otherwise would be. And they may fall asleep slightly faster. So I think for people who have insomnia, that type of device may be helpful. And you can now buy it via Amazon in the UK. I'm not sure about Australia, but it's just become available over here. I haven't tried it myself, but one of my friends is a psychiatrist. I know he's had very good results with it so far. The thing that I like about this particular device is that you're not really overriding your biology in the way a pharmacological approach would. So I think the likelihood of there being adverse effects is almost non-existent. Then in terms of other temperature regulating devices, you also mentioned the chili pad and the chili pad and the newer device, which is called the ULA are mattress toppers that use water-based cooling systems to help people better regulate their body temperature at night. And the Ula I think has some additional functionality. So for example, you can program changes in the mattress topper over the course of the night and you can, for example, make the mattress topper substantially warmer late in the sleep period so that it functions as an alarm. Which huh. is nice huh. and it also comes with a fan that will help block out ambient noise if you want to use that and I think that these are probably most useful in countries where people experience extremes of temperature that they otherwise struggle with so maybe they don't have air conditioning for example and for people who sleep with a bed partner who has quite different preferences so if one of you prefers a much warmer bed than the other then it can be handy I know this is the case for me my My girlfriend is basically a reptile, I swear swear that she's ectothermic. So, so she loves, she'd probably sleep on a radiator if she could. And, And meanwhile, I, I will sweat just eating a meal. So we're very different in that respect. So for people like us, it's ideal. And then in terms of some other variables, light is of course, one of these, and I think smart light systems for people who have lots of disposable income can be very helpful. And for people who don't have lots of disposable income, just being smart about light hygiene, if you want to call it that, is handy and I won't touch on that because we discussed it in the previous podcast, I'm sure. There are lots of different types of ways of stimulating our bodies during sleep that may have some bearing on the quality of our sleep. One of these is vestibular stimulation, for example. There have now been multiple studies showing that if you take somebody who's lying in bed and you slowly rock their bed, maybe once every four seconds or so, either during naps or during overnight sleep, you find that their sleep quality improves. Specifically, the rocking motion seems to actually actively entrain slow wave activity in the brain and may boost some brain waves named sleep spindles, which are particularly important to the consolidation of certain types of memory. But I think with this type of thing, more likely to be beneficial in people who who sleep is not so good at baseline. There's always a ceiling effect with these things. So if you take somebody who's already a good sleeper, they they just shouldn't be too concerned about any of the things that I've spoken about today. All of this really applies to people who have poor sleep issues. It's really important we don't ever pathologize minor deviations from the norm in in sleep. So I think vestibular stimulation is interesting, but it's more likely to be useful at some point in the future. I don't think that anybody's really applying that technology in a consumer device effectively right now, not that I've seen it, at least. Then there is auditory stimulation and Phyllis C has done a lot of interesting research using timely delivery of pink noise to increase the amplitude of slow wave activity in the brain and thereby perhaps boost things like memory formation, I think this is more likely to be beneficial to elderly people. And right now, again, I don't think that there are two consumer sleep devices that effectively apply this technology. So I wouldn't recommend that just yet. But one way of affecting sensory systems that I would recommend is olfactory stimulation, just having some lavender oil by the bedside. And it might just be two millilitres, something like that, a couple of drops of a 100% lavender oil, and the form that's often used in research is called silexan. S-I-L-E-X-A-N. That can be very helpful. And interestingly, when consumed orally, lavender may be helpful too, especially for anxiety-related sleep issues, but there was a meta-analysis published recently suggesting that lavender-based massage or aromatherapy may more potently affect sleep than oral consumption of lavender. But the meta-analysis was published in Korean. My Korean's not very good. So I can't really comment too much on that. So that's interesting. And then maybe there are certain other things that people might find helpful. So weighted blankets for people with anxiety issues. But I don't think the quality of the research on those is particularly high. And what I'll end by saying is that I think in the future, We're going to increasingly see machine learning based approaches that record somebody's sleep in real time, objectively and accurately, and then tweak changes in all of these different factors that I've just mentioned, everything from light to temperature to bed motion to enhance in bed conditions to improve sleep. And I see those as being very promising, possibly quite quite energy inefficient. Mm -hmm. And something which is saved for the super rich of the world. But I, I would also see those as having minimal side effects. And there are people who are already trying to implement that. I think there's a company named Bright Bed, B R Y T E, if I recall correctly, that tries to take that type of approach to helping people sleep better at the moment. So those are some non nutritional methods that I would consider using. But I think of those, the ones that I find Most interesting are things like the forehead cooling device, the aromatherapy, and the changes in light conditions. And then otherwise, I think with all of this type of thing, it's much more important to focus on those everyday, perhaps slightly banal behaviours that are so important to our health. So optimising physical activity and that type of thing, because people will spend so much time and effort Mm. and energy micromanaging some of the esoteric stuff when they should really be much more concerned about better attending to their exercise patterns
1: well said all right and finally you touched upon supplementation which may be a little bit cheaper and maybe seeming conventional compared to some of those um new emerging strategies but uh it sounds like you got some interesting ideas around um, supplementation. So, what are some of the the better known ones? And um, maybe you can share some of your thoughts on. Maybe we can somehow
0: um, subtype our supplementation for our sleep needs. Yeah. So, we were speaking about this briefly before we began recording. But what I was saying is that I think it's always worthwhile trying to consider all of the effects of supplements when choosing one, and also choosing the supplements according to somebody's sleep phenotype. So somebody who struggles to fall asleep at the start of the night because of anxiety is going to benefit from something different from somebody who struggles to sleep through the night because they wake up in the middle of the night with some sort of musculoskeletal pain. So with that said, what I'll do is, just because I want this to be helpful for practitioners, I'll mention some of the things which I think can be relatively effective. And with that said, I don't think any of this is nearly as important as the CBTI stuff that I mentioned earlier or perhaps the the general sleep hygiene factors that we sort of briefly touched on so for somebody who wants to fall asleep faster I think the evidence is very clear that regular melatonin can be helpful and the dose that's helpful is probably somewhere between about 300 micrograms and 10 milligrams Interestingly, higher doses aren't necessarily more beneficial. I would tend to start at the low end of that range and scale up if somebody doesn't feel like they're responding. But I also think that people with certain chronic cardiometabolic issues might benefit from the get-go with higher doses. There have been some interesting RCTs in recent years showing that people with, for example, blood sugar dysregulation or metabolic syndrome may benefit from regularly consuming high-dose melatonin it may have positive effects on all sorts of outcomes from blood pressure to measure of oxidative stress to blood sugar regulation. And if you're in a country in which melatonin is not available, then L-tryptophan acts as a precursor to melatonin via way of serotonin and two grams of L-tryptophan, maybe an hour before bed, which is the time at which you take melatonin, may have some positive effects on reducing sleep latency for people who struggle to sleep through the night i think timed release melatonin can be helpful circadin which is the drug i mentioned earlier is to my knowledge only available on prescription but there are time release versions of melatonin that supplement companies manufacture too and one of these is named restwell which is one word with an e on the end of it and that is two milligrams of time-release melatonin in the form of microactive melatonin, and I think that's a good option for people who want to try that. For people who have anxiety-related sleep issues, I mentioned Celex and Lavender earlier, and the dose of that that you might try is probably between 80 and 160 milligrams, but I'd probably start with aromatherapy before trying Oral Lavender, and then there are some other supplements that I think may be helpful for anxiety. L-theanine, for example, has probably modest effects on reducing anxiety and stress responses to various stresses. There was a systematic review published recently showing that perhaps 200 to 400 milligrams of L-theanine consistently reduce anxiety. And I would choose theanine, L-theanine, which is a synthetic form of L-theanine, which is, I think, more than 99% pure and has been very frequently used in research. I like ashwagandha if it's a standardized extract for many people I like it at least. And I would use KSM 66 ashwagandha, probably 600 milligrams. A lot of the research has been done in India and some of the research isn't of the highest quality. But I don't think that the fact that it's been done in India actually has any bearing on our interpretation of the research. And I think it's very interesting in that it tends to not only reduce anxiety, but there's also an increasingly strong body of evidence showing that it may, for example, boost cardiorespiratory fitness when consumed regularly. It may enhance adaptations to strength and power exercise. It may support reproductive function in both men and women, although those studies have generally been uncontrolled pilot studies and it may also have some positive effects on cardiometabolic health so i think 600 milligrams ksm66 ashwagandha with a meal possibly with an evening meal if you find that it makes you slightly sleepy is a good way to go then if somebody has pain sometimes that may relate to poor vitamin d status i'm not going to recommend a generic dose of vitamin d it's very dependent on needs i'd recommend much rather somebody improves vitamin D status by way of spending more time outside than by way of supplementation. But supplementation can be helpful and necessary for certain people. If you live in a very, very hot country, or if you're an elderly person, for example, then I would say that one product that I'm very interested in is tart cherry juice, which not only contains a plant-based form of melatonin, but it also has lots of other compounds in it that may not only improve sleep, but may improve exercise performance too, for example, by enhancing blood flow. And there's been some research showing that consumed repeatedly, tart cherry juice may reduce running related pain too. So I think consuming 60 milliliters of tart cherry juice, Marmorancy tart cherry juice is probably stuff that you want. Can be helpful for people and it's one of those things that i would tell pretty much anyone to give a go it's a whole food We've got nothing to lose and then otherwise i think for jet lag which is a separate conversation but i'll mention it here anyway i think one milligram of melatonin is probably about right and the time at which you take that depends on the nature of your travel use the website jetlagrooster.com to inform you about the timing of taking melatonin to help you get over jet lag faster and then finally just because i know you've mentioned it to me before nathan i think magnesium is a good idea for lots of people to take anyway if you look at the concentration of magnesium in the brain then it probably peaks at night and it may influence how responsive we are to certain weight promoting signals but the reason that I would include it is that it has positive effects on general health, and most people don't get enough of it. I think the RDA for most women is about 320 milligrams. For most men, it's about 420 milligrams. And taking maybe 200 milligrams in the form of citrate or glycinate makes sense. Citrate's cheap, and it's probably been the best studied form. So I'd go with that. And If you take more of it than you need, then you'll probably just excrete out anyway. So the potential for any harmful effects is very minimal. And the research on magnesium and sleep hasn't shown a great deal, but it's certainly not harmful. And the research on magnesium supplementation and and cardiometabolic health is actually quite striking. So 200 milligrams of magnesium with the final meal of the day, I think, can be quite helpful.
1: Nice. Beautiful. Let's um, give people some thoughts and I appreciate the specificity of the, the doses and the, the types of extracts, et cetera. So hopefully people will join down some notes there. All right. I think you've covered pretty much everything. I did have a quick question. Anything of more generic um, therapies like red light therapy, et cetera. Any thoughts on, on that and sleep?
0: Yeah. So, when you say red light therapy, I think you probably mean biomodulation Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Ambling, he he claims he's like the world leading researcher that he if he wakes up in the middle of the night. He wears it just shines a bit of red light on his forehead, and he's off like a baby again. But that's an anecdote. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and and he has done a huge amount of research on on biomodulation So I'd recommend people check out his work, but like. Anybody who studies something, it's possible to become a little bit overzealous about yes. the utility of it. <laughs> so it, with that said, I'm not aware of much research on photobiomodulation specifically in sleep, but there are data showing that red light exposure may increase sleep propensity. I use Fansomerans published some interesting data on that. And for that reason, I, I don't think it would hurt using photobiomodulation shortly before bedtime. And I would recommend it anyway, for people with certain health conditions. So there's been some really interesting work on mild cognitive dysfunction. For example, showing that careful use of photobiomodulation may improve that. Then if somebody has musculoskeletal problems, such as chronic low back pain, then there's also work showing that regular use of photobiomodulation may reduce pain in those people. And by reducing pain, I would expect that to improve their sleep if their sleep is disrupted by pain. So photobiomodulation is is one of the so-called hacks that I think is genuinely helpful for lots of people. And the tricky thing with it is that I think the optimal parameters are likely situation dependent. And it's not very clear to me at the moment what the optimal parameters for various conditions are. And the other consideration is just that you may buy a photobiomodulation device and it may say that it has certain wavelengths, mm. but it, you, you may not actually know whether the parameters that it claims to have are the parameters that it actually has. So some sort of third party testing of these devices would be helpful. That's a good point. But yes, I think photobiomodulation is something that's really helpful for lots of people. And then otherwise I think some forms of biofeedback can be helpful, often used for people who have insomnia and the idea is just to help people develop greater awareness and voluntary control over various different physiological processes that are affected by stress. That could be everything from heart rate to heart rate variability to muscle tension. And focusing on heart rate variability There have been some studies of HRV biofeedback in lots of different clinical populations experiencing poor sleep, everything from major depression to PTSD to cancer survivors. And there's been a bit of work on healthy people too. And these studies have quite consistently reported that HRV biofeedback may slightly improve sleep. And again, it's something that I see no real downside of, so I'd have no hesitation and recommending trying it for people who who like gadgets and for people who are struggling with feeling quite stressed in the 30 minute period or so before sleep
1: excellent thank you um yeah a couple more strategies there brilliant all right well i won't take up any more of your time you've been brilliant you've been um a world of knowledge here on everything around sleep and how to manage sleep better uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you in some shape, way, or form. Hopefully, in <laughs> Congress, you're going to tell us all about the role of sleep and chronobiology in cancer. So I've had a sneak peek at your slides and the content, and the and the uh, slides. I must say, look brilliant. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to, as I said, whatever the iteration we manage to showcase next year that uh,
0: that you're involved in. Yeah, so, I, I can't um, wait. can't wait thank you so much for inviting me no worries and and obviously it was not many days ago that the congress was supposed to be taking place so i was quite sad that it, it got rescheduled but it's understandable so it will just make it even better next year
1: absolutely all right well thank you again um i appreciate your time and i look forward to connecting again soon thanks nathan For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.